A political upset in Texas, a Democrat-friendly district picks a Republican to fill a vacated seat less than two months out from the midterms. More today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, with support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown on top of last night's Republican win by Pete Flores over Pete Gallego for a vacated state Senate seat. New numbers suggest that tight contest between Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke might not be so tight after all. We'll take a closer look. Also, frustration growing over rising student debt in higher ed. Now Texas's top-ranked private university announces free tuition for those who qualify. And the sixth Rolling Stone, Texas's own in the spotlight, all coming up today on The Standard. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this Wednesday, September 19th, 2018. I'm David Brown, and we're so glad you're spending a bit of your midweek with us. We begin by dipping our toes into the so-called blue wave many Texas Democrats have been hoping for, though at the moment it seems to be something of a low tide. Case in point, an upset victory last night in a district considered to favor Democrats. With less than two months to go before midterms, a special election to fill the vacated Texas Senate seat that once belonged to now-convicted felon Democrat Carlos Uresti, went to Republican Pete Flores of San Antonio. His challenger, Pete Gallego, lost by a six-point margin. It's an historic win as Flores becomes the first Hispanic Republican elected to serve in the state Senate, but a blow to Democrats' hopes to end the Republican supermajority under the Pink Dome in downtown Austin. For Texas Democrats, however, the bad news doesn't quite stop there. A new poll of the highly watched U.S. Senate contest between Beto O'Rourke and Republican Ted Cruz shows the incumbent Cruz with a nine-point lead, this in the thick of the campaign season. It's a 54-45 split with only 1% of likely voters telling pollsters from Quinnipiac they're undecided. There's a four-point margin of error here. The survey conducted between September 11th through 17th. This bucks the popular narrative of a race on the razor's edge, but we've seen polls get it wrong before, right? I mean... What are Texans to make of all this? And what about that gubernatorial race? Joining us now from Denton is Kimmy Lynn King. She is a political science professor at the University of North Texas. Professor, welcome to the Texas Standard. Glad to be here. All right, let's talk about some of these dynamics here. One of the reasons that uh, that we've asked you uh, to join us is because of this, I think a lot of people see it as a rather surprising um, uh, turn in the polls. This is a new Quinnipiac poll which is showing Ted Cruz with uh, a nine-point advantage over uh, his challenger, Beto O'Rourke, who seemed to have been gaining uh, of late. What do you make of of this poll in particular? And if you'd like to go down the road of (laughs) talking about polls more generally, I'd be interested in what you think. You bet. And it's important that not all polls are created equally. And one of the things that you have seen with the O'Rourke-Cruz battle that has been going on has been this issue regarding what the polls are saying for how close they are. The media is always accused of trying to run it as a horse race. And so whenever you get within the margin of error that you want to be concerned about whether or not your poll is accurate. Why there is so much over the Quinnipiac poll right now is because this was a poll that was of likely voters. Previous polls have been registered voters. That makes a huge difference. Hmm. Just because you like someone doesn't mean you're going to show up and vote for them. And so the likely voters 
poll indicates that those who are mobilized are more mobilized in the Cruz camp. And that has always been an issue for Texas Democrats. We saw that in the the Davis race in 2014 against Abbott. So what it sounds like you're saying is that the electorate turnout will be actually key to the outcome of this race, as you say. It absolutely will be, and it's your ability to mobilize voters to get out to the polls. Generally, at this point in a race, once you get between four to six weeks out, voters have made up their mind. And in fact, the Quinnipiac poll gets at that because it says that of these voters, 93% have already decided. And that's critical for O'Rourke if he's going to turn this around. Nine points is a large spread. So it's time to get moving. So if if I understand what you're saying here, um, as you look at the methodology and you factor in what you know about uh, voter behavior in Texas, Beto O'Rourke does have something to worry about here. He does. And The Republicans can't rest on their laurels either. Recall that we've had some upsets in Georgia in the New York race where everyone showed the Democratic candidate being behind, and yet those candidates came back and won. Why? Because the electorate in that state were highly mobilized, and they turned out. They changed who the electorate was, and so those were surprising upsets. In Texas, it's not clear that will be the case unless there is some kind of real October surprise that might come from the Kavanaugh hearings, or you saw going back to 1990 with Clayton Williams and Ann Richards. Hmm. He started out with a 20-point uh, difference being favored over her, and she came back and beat him with a vengeance. Yeah. Um, I want to uh, talk a little bit about how the dynamics of this uh, Aurora Cruz race might or might not be affecting what's happening in the gubernatorial race, because I think, as a lot of listeners will note, there hasn't been a whole lot of, certainly a, a whole lot of attention focused uh, either on the, na- certainly not on the national level, but even on the local level. Uh, Lupe Valdez really isn't um, much of a presence. Uh, would you agree? She hasn't been able to get traction in the race in the same way that O'Rourke has been able to get traction. Understand that part of that is that Abbott has a high likability. He has a high favorability rating, 62%. Uh, approve of his job, whereas 34% disapprove. If you look at the favorability of Valdez, they're evenly split, 28 to 28. And even more concerning for Valdez is that 42% of voters don't know enough about her to form an opinion. Remember that six to eight weeks out, people have already made up their minds. So if you haven't decided by now, you aren't going to decide, and that means you may not turn out. Traditionally, we think of the elections at the top of the ballot as being the most important ones, so statewide races. And in any other election year, we would say that's the governor's race. But in this year, it's clearly the Senate race, and Valdez may be hoping for a little bit of a coattail effect Mm -hmm. on O'Rourke to get people to turn out. Recall that Abbott has $50 million in his war chest right. funding, and she only has not even $1 million yet. She doesn't have anything near the $23 million that both Cruz and O'Rourke have in their war chest right now for the campaign. Let me ask you about that uh, idea of the war chest, because uh, I know that if you talk to 
those uh, uh, who give you the conventional wisdom on Texas politics, the, the idea is that you need to raise the money to get those ads out. And uh, But I wonder, given the shifting landscape of mass media, certainly, how many uh, minds are being changed uh, by TV ads, which, let's face it, that's where a good part of this money, in fact, the bulk of it, tends to go toward media buys. That is such an excellent question. And one of the things you see in those upsets that I talked about in other states uh-huh. is they didn't go with a conventional strategy. They took to social media. They took to getting out there. You've seen uh, Beto get out and hit all 254 counties right. trying to follow on some of that pattern that grassroots movements can happen in a lot of different ways. And and remember that a good chunk of the population, if they were to turn out, are millennials. And those millennials are very supportive of Beto, and they're very supportive of the Democratic cause across the country. But millennials, in the conventional wisdom, are not likely voters. They may be registered voters. Everyone is going to be talking about how many more young people are getting registered, but it doesn't matter if you don't show up in the two weeks before the election. I wonder uh, I wonder what you think of this argument, which is something that, that has been discussed, certainly, as we've been uh, looking at the race here in the newsroom. Of course, Beto O'Rourke has a certain uh, charisma, which has been commented on, certainly in the national media. And uh, I say certain charisma, let's just face it. I mean, in many circles, uh, he's considered uh, something of a political rock star. Uh, and, uh, right, you know, in, in, in this, uh, slightly the same way that Wendy Davis had that going for her in her campaign uh, several or, years ago. Or Senator Cruz had it when he first came right. out swinging as a challenger. He was considered to be a conservative rock star, yes, sir. Oh, I, what I'm wondering here is uh, whether or not the fact that O'Rourke is so... Um, uh, exciting uh, 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 and charismatic a politician, the Democrats who have money to give are putting money in his campaign, and that is taking away from a fellow Democrat, Lupe Valdez. That is absolutely the case, that you see people drawing in money, and it will draw it away from other candidates in much the same way that there were complaints about Senator Cruz when he first started out as a senator. There were some concerns that he was drawing money away Mm -hmm. from some other critical races. Texas was so solidly red that it wasn't an issue. So for those other candidates, they still managed to hold on. I think that's absolutely playing itself out. But remember, Valdez was not nearly as well-known. She didn't come out swinging in the same way that O'Rourke did. And I think that's part of what contributes to it. I think in general in this election cycle, it's everything is up for grabs. I'm sure you're following what happened with uh, the Gallego Flores. Right. Race, upset. Right? Upset. Yeah, that's an upset. So for folks that are thinking that there is a blue wave coming, keep in mind that everything about that race that just happened between Pete Gallego and Pete Flores seems to indicate that Conventional wisdom is holding up, and if you don't have enough money, when in doubt, the state is going to be red. Kimmy Lynn King is a political science professor at the University of North Texas in Denton. Um, really interesting analysis, Professor. Thank you so much for taking some time out to talk with, uh, with us in the Texas Standard. We sure do appreciate it. You betcha. He 
He's back on this Wednesday. It's our social media editor, Wells Dunbar. Sticking with Texas politics, lots of attention online for last night's special election in Senate District 19, stretching from San Antonio to West Texas. As just noted, Republican Pete Flores won the special election, picking up another GOP state Senate seat in what had been a reliably Democratic district. That plus that poll showing Ted Cruz opening up a lead over Beto O'Rourke has some asking if all the talk about a blue wave is circling the drain. Carlos Huerta tweets us asking, how the heck does one lose the Democratic district in a Democratic year? Meanwhile, on our Facebook page, Rachel Elizabeth says the results tell you how afraid the state's current leadership is that there will be a high midterm midterm turnout. She goes on to ask, why hold a one-off special election now when there's a general election in just 48 days? Hmm. Because it's a heck of a lot easier to win an election when only a small percentage of the citizens even know there's an election happening. And just uh, a couple reactions out there, David. Yeah, I, I need to share something because we were talking about about these polls and Reuters has just published a new poll. I think I just know where you're going as here. We, as we're coming into the studio, Reuters Ipsos uh, UVA Center for Politics poll released just a few minutes ago. Uh, Beto O'Rourke is shown as having a two percentage point lead over Ted Cruz. Holy yeah, crazy smokes. stuff. Lots of folks talking about that one, too, so I'll have more later in the show. Yeah. Uh, let's hear from you, Texas. Tweet us at Texas Standard Wells back in 35. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group. Providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Texas is one of a handful of states with a deregulated electricity market. The idea here is to give consumers the option to pick power plans they think would best fit their needs. You know, lower costs. That was the promise of deregulation. Customers can find the plans offered on the state's Power to Choose website or its Spanish-language counterpart, Poder de Escoger. Now, in theory, those two sites are supposed to have the exact same offerings, so no one is disadvantaged. But the Texas Public Utility Commission found that wasn't the case. Joining us now is Houston Chronicle reporter Lynn Sixel. She's been covering this story. Lynn, welcome back to the Texas Standard. Pleasure to be here. I suppose we should lay out the landscape uh, if we can. I mean, for instance, I'm speaking with you from Austin, where the city of Austin maintains a virtual uh, monopoly, right? But in much of the rest of the state, people can pick and choose from what? How many plans and companies are we talking about here? There are 117 retail electric providers registered in Texas, and they have more than 900 plans. But of those, there are about 57 providers listed on the Power to Choose website. And uh, if you were to go to the Spanish language equivalent, would you see the same number of providers and the same kinds of plans, or I gather not? Not if you look last week. There were only 23 plans on the Spanish Power to Choose site. Well, first of all, this Power to Choose site and in its Spanish language equivalent, are these supposed to be the authoritative places for people to do their electricity shopping? Why are there such websites in the first place and why are they so central to this conversation to begin with? It's really complicated to buy electricity in the deregulated parts of Texas, which include Houston and Dallas. 
In fact, 85% of the state is deregulated. So it's really important to have a site in which you can go and find out the best plans, the, the cheapest plans. And the best deals that the deregulated part of Texas can find is on Power to Choose. That's going to be your best deals. And so that's why uh, people use them. And that's why it's so important to be able to go on, on the site and find a, find a low-cost plan. But, of course, if you speak only Spanish and you go to the Spanish-language website, you are at a distinct disadvantage compared to your uh, English-speaking neighbors uh, when it comes to picking out the best price plan. If, you're, if you speak Spanish and you're looking for a low-cost plan, mm -hmm. as of last week, it would have been difficult to find some of the really great offers that were on the English version of Power to Choose. As you were preparing this story, one of your uh, sources said, yeah, yes, we're dealing with cyberspace here to the extent that we're talking about websites, but this source said that, that this sounded an awful lot like to them a kind of redlining. Yes, he's referring to a practice banks would, would use to circle areas on maps in which uh, the bank decided they didn't want to lend money to or that they would charge higher rates to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And typically it was poor minority neighborhoods. What does the Texas Public Utility Commission have to say about all this? Uh, Chairman Deanne Walker was very upset. And she said in a meeting on um, Friday that there was not going to be um, plans listed on, on one website and not the other. And she gave a deadline of 8 a.m. Monday morning for uh, any providers that want to put their plans on the Power to Choose website, that they must put them on both the Spanish language and the English language versions. It's, it's interesting that, that apparently uh, no one was paying any attention to the discrepancies until, you know, of course, you start reporting it here for the Houston Chronicle. How are they able to get away with this in the first place? That was one of the really surprising parts of the story was that all the folks that I talked to really had no idea that, that there were different plans on both sites. And I think there was an, sort of an assumption that um, the same plans were on both sites. We'll have to see how all of this uh, ultimately uh, develops. But Lynn Sixel is on the story as business reporter for the Houston Chronicle. We'll have a link to her bigger piece at TexasStandard.org, as well as her subsequent follow-ups. Lynn, thanks so much for speaking with us on The Standard. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to The Texas Standard. You know, Texans are noted for a certain personal pride in being Texan. You've seen the native Texan bumper sticker on more than a few vehicles if you've spent any time in the Lone Star State. But more Texan than commentator W.F. Strong? Well, you might want to take it up with him directly. About a month ago, my son went off to college with my Jeep, and I needed to get another vehicle. I had been truckless for a few years, a rare condition in my life, and I decided I wanted to fix that right away. For a long time, I had wanted a King Ranch Edition Ford pickup with those fine leather seats, carrying the classic brand of the ranch I hunted on as a boy. So now I had the chance and the reason to buy one. With two kids in college, it was no time to splurge on a new one, but I thought I might find a previously owned truck that would satisfy my longing. 
thanks to the wonders of the Internet, I was able to search for just what I wanted. A one-owner vehicle in near-mint condition being sold by an owner who had elaborate maintenance records and a pristine Carfax report. I found what I was looking for in San Antonio, 300 miles from where I live in the valley. So I contacted the owner, and we made a gentleman's agreement as to price over the phone, and I headed up to look at it. I loved it. Beautiful truck. Dark brown with tan trim. Meticulously maintained. I said, let's do it. So he pulled out the title to begin the paperwork, and I was surprised to see that his name was William B. Travis. I said, I guess you know you're kind of famous. He said, yes, I do have a famous name, and I have the whole name, too. I'm William Barrett Travis, and I'm also a descendant. I was astounded by the coincidence. I thought, here I am, a specialist in Texas lore and legend, about to buy a King Ranch pickup from a descendant of the commander of the Alamo, and he still lives in San Antonio. How cool is that? In the favorite word of my teenage son, awesome. We finished up the paperwork and payment, and he walked me out and gave me a detailed tour of the unique features of the truck and directions on how to get back to the expressway to head home. I could tell he was a little sad to let go of the pickup. They'd had many good years together. I said, I promise, I'll take good care of her. So I drove my new truck, new to me anyway, back to the valley. It was good to be riding high in the saddle once more, driving into a blustery coastal wind without breaking a sweat. In fact, I drove my King Ranch Edition pickup with its Alamo lineage back through the actual King Ranch while eating a Whataburger and listening to Willie Nelson's On the Road Again. I just have one thing to say. Out Texas me that. The only thing that would have made it better is if Southwest Airlines had done a flyby at 200 feet and given me a wing salute. I'm W.F. Strong. These are stories from Texas. Some of them are true. Yeah, that would be something, wouldn't it? W.F. Strong's a Fulbright scholar and professor of culture and communication at the University of Texas RGV. You can check out more of his stories from Texas in the book by that name at texasstandard.org or wherever fine podcasts are served. Coming up on 29 Minutes past the hour. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogle with a roundup of news from across the state. Senator John Cornyn of Texas says he and fellow members of the Senate Judiciary Committee want to investigate an allegation of sexual assault against U.S. Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. But he says they can't do that without testimony from his accuser, Christine Blasey Ford. Cornyn, the second-ranking Republican in the Senate, said Tuesday Ford can determine how she'd like to testify. If she'd prefer to do this in a closed setting, that's her choice. But we've offered her basically 
either an open or closed setting. Ford, a professor in California, has accused Kavanaugh of sexually assaulting her at a party when they were in high school in the 1980s. So far, she has not accepted the invitation to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee on Monday. Instead, her attorneys say the first step that needs to be taken before a hearing is an FBI investigation, which Democrats are also calling for. Her lawyers also raise concerns about the hearing's impact on Ford, writing in a letter that it, quote, would include interrogation by senators who appear to have made up their minds that she is mistaken and mixed up, end quote. Kavanaugh has unequivocally denied the allegations. Texas natural gas is now on China's list of American goods facing a 10 percent retaliatory tariff. And as Houston Public Media's Travis Bubinick reports, that's just the kind of thing the energy industry worried growing trade tensions would lead to. China is the third largest importer of U.S. liquefied natural gas. Most of it's exported from a facility on the Texas-Louisiana border, and similar terminals are in the works up and down the Texas coast. And as the trade wars escalated, the industry and Houston business leaders have warned it could jeopardize LNG deals and the future of those multi-billion dollar facilities. University of Houston economist Ed Hers. If this continues to be a tit-for-tat retaliation, this will cause diminished economic activity. Still, some are staying optimistic. Last month, the head of Chenier Energy, the nation's largest LNG exporter, noted his business is a, quote, very long-term one and that it's continuing to solidify relationships in China. In Houston, I'm Travis Bubinick. Don't mess with Nana. That's the message the mayor of a small Texas town is sending after taking revenge on an alligator. 73-year-old great-grandmother Judy Cochran of Livingston shot a nearly 600-pound gator who she believes got a hold of her miniature horse three years ago. Here's Cochran getting encouragement from son-in-law Scott Hughes moments before she pulled the trigger. Nana, you better hit him good because that's that's that horse eater. The Houston Chronicle reports that as an elected official, Cochran wanted to assure the public the hunt was safe and ethical. Cochran lives in Polk County, where gator hunting season is running from September 10th through the 30th. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from the Texas Secretary of State, providing voters details on what approved forms of photo ID they can bring to the polls. More at votetexas.gov or 800-252-VOTE. 33 minutes past the hour. Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. We're not breaking any news here by telling you that college is expensive, right? These days, average in-state tuition and fees at a public university will run you just under $10,000 per academic year. Bump that up to $35,000 if you go to a private institution. Those numbers according to the College Board. But in the face of these record costs, Rice University in Houston has announced it's offering a solution of sorts for those who qualify. The university will foot the bill themselves at least for students who may not be able to pay otherwise. Rice says that starting in 2019, any admitted undergraduate from a household that makes $65,000 or less annually will receive a full scholarship for tuition, room, and board. Here to talk about what Rice's move means for higher education more broadly, Sandy Baum. She's a senior fellow in the Income and Benefits Policy Center at the Urban Institute. She's also the author of the book Student Debt, Rhetoric and Realities of Higher Education Financing. Dr. Baum, welcome to Texas Standard. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. When you look at the big picture here, uh, what is this step by Rice? Is it uh, symbolic, significant? What do you make of it? Well, in some ways, it is both symbolic and significant. First of all, it sends a very important message that people need to hear that they can afford a Rice education even if they don't come from affluent families. However, 
it is symbolic in the sense that Rice already has a very generous financial aid program, as do other highly selective private colleges that have significant endowments. Rice already gives significant need-based financial aid. It looks at people's financial circumstances and it tries to figure out how it can make it possible for everyone to afford a Rice education. Now, let me ask you about this because this has come up more recently in conversations about the cost of higher ed. And what I'm specifically referring to is how at private institutions, uh, most significantly, uh, there are inflated pricing. I suppose you could say, in inflated pricing strategies. Do you know what I'm referring to there? Yes. Uh, these institutions have what is frequently called a high tuition, high aid policy, which means that they set a published tuition and fee price, but then they discount that price for many students. Now, there are some institutions where everybody gets a discount, where the price has very little meaning. But an institution like Rice that is selective and does uh, enroll a lot of students who really can't afford to pay the price. Probably a, a significant number of students do pay the price. And the reason they do this, this pricing strategy is because they need to get tuition revenue from someone. They're getting the tuition revenue from the people who can afford it. Mm -hmm. And then they are discounting the price based on students' financial circumstances so that people can afford it. You have to charge different prices to different people if you want to continue to operate and you also want low and moderate income students to be able to enroll. Well, there's a question here. Do you think we'll see more colleges following Rice's lead? Well, Rice is not the first institution to do this. Harvard started many years ago saying it's free if your income is below $180,000. One question that I really don't know the answer to is, how are they dealing with people at these thresholds? It's great to be able to tell people whose incomes are between 65000 and 130000 that it's tuition-free, but what if your income is 131000 mm -hmm. And at some institutions that do this, they, they slope it. That, that's what you do if you don't make this announcement. It's gradual. The more income you have, the less aid you get. Um, I hope that Rice is doing something like that, but they're not the first to do this. It's really the communication strategy, and a number of institutions have done it. And if you can work out the details, it's a very reasonable way to communicate. A lot of people are hailing Rice for this move, and I wonder, since you seem to, uh, I mean, you've literally written the book on, on student debt, mm -hmm. uh, if you uh, had a, an opportunity to talk to colleges who were looking at this issue, what would you say uh, could be done that would make a meaningful dent in, in student debt? Well, I think it's very important for colleges that have the resources to do as much as they can to meet students' financial need. In other words, to say, here's a package. We know how you're going to pay for this. Your parents are going to pay what they can. You can work over the summer. You can have a job while you're in school. You can borrow some, but not too much. And the rest of that will fill in for you. And every college can come, should come as close as possible to doing that. So students don't need to borrow more than a few thousand dollars a year. I, I, I don't think that trying to make debt zero is a necessary goal. It's better to help more students pay and allow them to borrow reasonable amounts. But certainly putting resources into making college and making selective high-priced colleges accessible 
to students without their own resources is a very important step. I think a lot of colleges do more than they get credit for in that direction. Mm -hmm. Communicating this to students is really important. Sandy Baum is a senior fellow at the Urban Institute and author of the book Student Debt, Rhetoric and Realities of Higher Education Financing. Dr. Baum, thanks so much for speaking with us on The Standard. Thank you for having me. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Officials in Dallas and other Texas cities have been trying to address low graduation rates, but part of that's finding a baseline for who's most at risk, KERA's Bill Zebel reports. Across Texas, 85% of high school kids graduate. That's the average. But the graduation rate at Thomas Jefferson High in Dallas, 67%. Three other Dallas high schools tied with rates of 68%. That's according to a report by the education nonprofit Children at Risk. CEO Bob Sanborn says he doesn't blame the schools as much as the overall education system. Did those kids get full-day pre-K? Did they have high-quality K through 3? Were they reading a grade level in third grade? You know, so it's, it's more than just a look at high schools. Sanborn said in Houston, the graduation rates are even worse, closer to 50 percent in some schools. He says low graduation rates persist across urban districts statewide. We're looking at practically one in five children that should be graduating that are not graduating. It's a travesty for those kids, but it's certainly a travesty for us because these are kids that are going to grow into adults that are going to, they're going to be underperformers. Sanborn said in every large city, there are high schools that beat these statistics, but it's rare. Sanborn's urging state lawmakers to take action during the next legislative session. Low graduation rates means students end up in low-paying jobs and Sanborn says every part of Texas feels the impact. I'm Bill Zebel for the Texas Standard. Let's see, there's Ronnie, Charlie, Bill, Mick, Keith, and Bobby. The man who many consider the sixth member of the Rolling Stones is none other than a Texan named Bobby Keys. Keyes grew up in Slayton, just outside of Lubbock, and played saxophone with just about everyone, it seems, from Chuck Berry and Carly Simon to John Lennon and Sheryl Crow, plus the Stones, of course. A documentary about Bobby Keyes is screening tonight in the Texas capital city. The Texas Standard's own Leah Scarpelli wanted to find out more about the film and the man it's about. Bobby Keyes is not the best saxophone player in the world. He's the best rock and roll saxophone player in the world. He plays the saxophone in one giant swagger. Relentless when he plays. Bobby Keys is actually like the sixth stone. Those were the voices of musicians Charlie Watts, Joe Ely, Lisa Fisher, and Keith Richards from Every Night's a Saturday Night, The Bobby Keys Story. Jeff Stacy is the film's director and producer. Bobby Keys was the, I definitely was one of them most important rock and roll saxophonist ever. No one does it like Bobby. He has a grittiness that parallels or complements guitar parts like no one else. And that's producer Jeffrey Brown. 
But the journey from Texas to the big time, you might say, began when Keyes was just 12 years old. And he was lying in bed and he heard music coming through his bedroom window and he went out, climbed a tree to see what it was and it was Buddy Holly playing on a, a flatbed wagon. He said once he saw that, it was, it was just a matter of time and it was a, it was a call for Bobby. Bobby Keys originally wanted to play guitar, but said his fingers were too short. And after an injury prevented him from joining the football team, Keys discovered he could still be part of the action as a member of the marching band. So he picked up the tenor saxophone. Never learning how to read music, Keys taught himself how to play, in part by listening to the music of Fort Worth's King Curtis. Keyes would also sneak into a local bar to hear Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf. At just 16, he left West Texas to go on the road. Take good care of my baby. He toured with Buddy Knox and Bobby V. He put his signature sax sound on The Wanderer by Dion and Return to Sender by Elvis Presley. He fell in with a group of musicians in Los Angeles known as Delaney and Bonnie and Friends, whose members at one time included George Harrison and Eric Clapton. He'd later record with both. But in the mid-60s, Bobby Keys met the British five-piece, who'd really put him in the spotlight. At a stop at the San Antonio Teen Fair, playing with Bobby V and Dick Clark's Caravan of Stars, Keys had a sort of wardrobe malfunction, says producer Jeffrey Brown. Bobby... Uh went to put his uh, pants on and he tore the hem out of his pants. And so he had to go on stage with uh, cowboy boots and Bermuda shorts when everybody else was dressed in suits. The Rolling Stones were also there. And Keith Richards remembered the moment a few years later when he invited Keys to play on the song, Live With Me. Richards and Keyes grew close. As it happens, they were born on the exact same day, and they had something else in common, a propensity to stir up occasional trouble. They famously threw a television set out of a hotel window while on tour in 1972, for instance. But it wasn't just talent and a lively personality that got Keyes into the studio, with so many notable musicians. Again, Jeffrey Brown and Jeff Stacy. Bobby was a bit of a hustler. In the, in the best sense of the word of getting convincing people that he needed to play on their on their records. He would go in and while they were listening to playbacks and go, oh, that sounds good, but you know, it doesn't really rock. What you need is some horns. That's how Keys came to play what many consider his most memorable saxophone solo, originally a guitar lick on Brown Sugar. Bobby picked up a sax and when there was time to to play, he played and Jimmy Miller, who was the producer for the Stones at the time, liked what he heard. Bobby Keys would continue to collaborate with the Stones until his substance abuse got in the way, but he eventually got clean and his career continued, 
until he finally started his own band in 2010 and passed away from cirrhosis of the liver in 2014. Director Jeff Stacy says Keys is part of a legacy of Texas tenor saxophone players. I think Bobby fits right in with King Curtis, certainly who he idolized, but Illinois Jaquette and Arnett Cobb and all these guys that would just blow the hell out of a tenor saxophone. There's just there's a Texas tenor sound, which is they blow hard and they get a little bit of dirt in there, and it sounds good. But it was the merger of gritty sax and rock and roll that may be Key's most enduring legacy. Stacy says you can still hear it in rock music today. They still will throw horns in there. I mean, I think they all owe it a little bit of it to Bobby that it that it stayed current. Through it all, Stacy says Bobby Keys never really knew what set him apart. I think he just loved the music. I know when I asked him about it, he was just like, "If I start off right and know when to stop, I'm good. I'll be good in between." And 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 he was. Every night's a Saturday night. The Bobby Keys story is screening tonight at AFS Cinema in Austin. It's scheduled for cable release at the end of November. I'm Leah Scarpelli for the Texas Standard. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you. You're listening to the Texas Standard. For many in central Mexico, September 19th has long been a dark day on the calendar. It's the day in 1985 when an earthquake registering eight on the Richter scale rumbled through Mexico City, killing over 10,000 people, a tragedy unimaginable to most. But on the same day, 32 years later, it happened again. A massive earthquake shook Mexico's capital city on September 19th, 2017. And while it wasn't nearly as lethal as the 1985 quake, aftershocks continue in the minds of so many. Helping people cope with trauma has taken up much of Marcela Rosas Pena's time over the last year. She is a psychologist at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, or UNAM, and she joins us now from Mexico City. Senora Rosas Pena, welcome to the Texas Standard. Hi. Can you tell us a little bit about how you personally experienced the earthquake? Well, I was working uh, in one of the um, clinics of the UNAM. For us, it was no so big, so tragedy. In the south of, of the city, it was very difficult after the, um, the earthquake to return to the, our houses. Some of our friends uh, lost their houses. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of what sort of trauma people experienced that day. What, what did people tell you about what they were going through? Yes, in the research that we, we have observed, that the people who experienced the earthquake before, of 1985, uh, were more affected. Uh, in what way? How were they affected? How were how were they uh, more severely affected? Well, they were they had crises uh, at the moment of the earthquake. Uh, the people can sleep that night. Some people uh, don't want to didn't want to to come back to their to their houses. 
many people, even uh, when the, the earthquake passed one month mm -hmm. ago, mm -hmm. the people still have a, like bad dreams about it or they uh, think that they were hearing the, the alarm. Mm -hmm. We have here in the city, we have a, an alarm that sounds when an earthquake is coming 30 seconds before we mm -hmm. hear the alarm. But in this time, in this earthquake, in the, the last one, one year ago, we have not hear it. Uh, many people have applied um, certain um, procedures to be uh, um, ready if an earthquake comes. I can see how the anniversary of this kind of event might bring about traumatic feelings. How do you work with people going through that um, when they see the date looming on the calendar? Well, uh, we, uh, as a psychologist, we have all this, this year have um, training about first response in these cases. So in the, in the faculty of UNAM Faculty of Psychology, we are ready to respond to this crisis because even though today we hope <laughs> uh, there is no one earthquake, this um, day will be very uh, traumatic for many people. So we are ready to give people the first response, first psychological response to help them to take calm and to calm down their crisis. I wish we had more time. Um, Marcela Rosas Peña is a psychologist at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, also known locally as UNAM. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with us on the Texas Standard. You're welcome. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Hello there, Wells Dunbar. Hello, David Brown. As most of our longtime listeners know, Mr. Dunbar is our social media editor here at The Standard, and uh, he's been perusing what the different platforms are talking about. Perusing away, yes. Yes. You know, and here is a story that definitely has folks talking. We mentioned it earlier. A new poll shows Ted Cruz opening a wider lead over Beto O'Rourke right. among likely voters, 54 to 45, except for another poll that shows O'Rourke edging Cruz out by two points. So lots of polling talk on yeah. Twitter, you could say. Right. Uh, Patrick Svitek of the Texas Tribune, he pointed out the differences succinctly on Twitter. He says the big difference is uh, Quinnipiac. Did I got that right? Mm, Quinnipiac. Quinnipiac is Quinnipiac the way poll was, uh, That polled live landlines and cell phones. That's the one that showed Cruz with that right. uh, big lead. The Reuters poll was online. The Q poll sample was 35% Republican, 26% Democrat, 33% independent. The Reuters sample looked a little more evenly weighted among mm -hmm. uh, partisans. 463 Repu Republicans, 423 Democrats, 90 independents, fewer independents. So, I mean, there's obviously lots of polling, right. uh, you know, variables you can do here. Uh, but, you know, well, the big he, poll is in November is what we're well, hearing that's, from that's people. That's right. And, I mean, you know, uh, election day is, is the one that counts. Yeah. The, the, something that a lot of pollsters, and we've had this conversation about, uh, you know, and, and part of it, by the way, is how the media loves the horse race. Yeah, exactly. let's, just be, let's just be candid about it. But one of the aspects of polling that I think is perhaps less discussed, mm -hmm. it's a little bit of the black magic. It's the stuff that makes each poll distinctive. And we're talking about the assumptions that are baked in to a lot of the findings. For example, you can get these raw numbers, but what do you then do mm -hmm. with the raw numbers? 
and then you begin to talk about weighting the polls. You were just yeah. using that phrase, and and the weighting. Consider for a moment if you're a pollster and you're looking at this race. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, historically. Democrats have not turned out to vote in Texas. That's mm-hmm. a, that's a fact. We know that from from state records. So if a turnout is much greater than any assumption that's baked in about Democrats uh, with yeah. low turnout, that could change. No, so, and that's exactly what we're hearing from one of our listeners, Genevieve. She tweets us that the only way for Beto to win is to change the electorate. It's hard to capture that movement in polls, especially among voters under 45 years old. And Allison in Galveston tweets us uh, her, her two cents on these polling numbers. Mm-hmm. It means that anything can happen. Get out and vote in November. She tweeted that in all caps. So she added this important addendum yes i am yelling uh because this is important a lot of passions running high here's another story that's uh, trending on twitter the spokesman for the texas attorney's general office has deleted his twitter account after coming under fire for retweeting messages mocking the sexual assault allegation against brett kavanaugh this is first reported by our friend lauren mcgahan mm-hmm. at the dallas morning news mark mm-hmm. rylander spokesperson for texas ag ken paxton shared two tweets monday mocking the gravity of the assault claim against Kavanaugh. One of the tweets compared the allegation to cheating at a game of pin the tail on the donkey in kindergarten. Uh, Well, after that report, the tweets weren't just taken down. Rylander appears to have nuked his entire Twitter account, but as always, the screenshots remain. On Mm -hmm. her Facebook page, Tara Lane Bowman says she saw similarly cruel jokes on social media yesterday, and she notes that while people can disagree, they certainly don't have to mock an attempted rape accusation. So obviously another instance of passions running really high ahead of the nomination and that's another thing we're watching here is uh, whether or not this is uh, we will hear from Kavanaugh and uh, his accuser both on Monday coming coming up real shortly. You know it's hard to deny what the Texas, uh, I should say the Christian Science Monitor was pointing out uh, this morning uh, that the power of the hashtag is making itself felt in this uh, nomination and that is for certain. We'd love for you to weigh in on this or anything else. You can just tweet us at Texas Standard. Join the conversation on Facebook. Wells Dunbar, always looking for you. And we are out of time for the big broadcast. Hope you can join us again tomorrow. Have a wonderful Wednesday. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington Family, and St. David's Foundation. R.I. Public Radio International.